welcome back. You're listening to the 24 Faithful Podcast. I am today now your host, Bradley Adams. As we mentioned before the holiday period, when we last recorded, Josh Rivers is no longer going to be joining us for the foreseeable future. He's got a new job, which has taken him away from being able to record. But fortunately, I'm joined and will be joined for the rest of the series by Joel Wood. Joel, how are you doing? I'm great. Josh has been relieved of his duties. He is no longer here. He has been fired. Yeah, Kind of like CTU being disbanded at the end of or after season six going into season seven. So in a way, it's kind of fitting, although we do still have some season six discussion to be had. So he's almost, he's almost got it right. Well, we, we decided to send Josh along with, with Mark. You know, it was time to weed out the originals. You know, kind of like before season seven, when 24 got rid of all the originals and they just kept Jack and Chloe. That's what we're doing here. Getting rid of all the originals, except Josh is not going to be like Tony and come back from the dead. <laughs> well, we'll come on to that, I'm sure, in future weeks. Oh, um, we but as will. I mentioned, <laughs> we do have some, uh, some season six wrap-up just to get through. Uh, season six, we've spent a lot of time talking about it. I've spent a lot of time complaining about it. One of the things that's particularly notable about season six is that there has been so much packed into every episode compared to other seasons where we have actually managed to just sort of breeze through it and combine a lot of topics. Um, but there are a few things that we do need, still need to talk about from season six. The first of them, and this one we sort of decided that we'd save to now because it's such a recurring theme in season six that we didn't want to do it four times. And that is the racial politics angle, which is just, look i'm not gonna pull any punches it's terrible it's it's really bad the way they handle this in season six well it's kind of topical with what's going on in the world today but back then when did this season air 2006? 2007 2007 okay so that was that was about a year before we had our first african-american president so I could see how it would be topical, but the way that they played off the angle with the camps and, you know, the certain undertones around it, I felt could have been done a little bit better. I don't know what Fox, what Fox's standards were at the time, but I feel like they could have done a lot better with it because a lot of the stuff that they did was kind of one of Hollywood's tropes, you know, when they when they address racial politics and racial tension and racism in general, you know, you kind of see it done the same way. I'm not against the racial politics angle as long as they did it a little bit better. You know, I'm not against controversial angles and storylines and, you know, things of that nature. It's how you approach it and how you do it. And I felt like they probably could have done it a lot better, um, especially the whole storyline with Waleed and Wayne's sister. And If I wasn't doing this podcast, I probably would have fast-forwarded through most of those scenes. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm on a similar page to you. To me, the issue with it is not – the way that 24 seems to approach it this season with, with regards to the racial politics is that it's almost looked at it and gone, right, we're going to have this plot that is involving Assad and involving Fayed and involving the Middle East and all this stuff. And then it's kind of gone, well, we've done this with um, Syed Ali in season two and we've done it with Marwan and the Arazes in season four. We've had the, this angle on it before. So we kind of feel, it kind of like, oh, we need to comment on it. But it just kind of acknowledges what it's doing. It doesn't really actually try and add anything. It doesn't actually try and analyze the situation. If you look at, we come back to like season three and Stephen Saunders, and it's, it's a wild comparison, but you look at the way that they handled the sensitivity of everything going on around the, the Chandler Plaza Hotel and the assisted suicide and Jack's sort of 
breakdown towards the end, the way that he has to deal with everything. These sort of more serious topics that actually they handle quite well. And, you know, even in season one, the the sexual assault storyline, the rape storyline with Nicole is decently handled, I think, from what I can recall. Whereas this just... It, <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't doesn't work for me. You're right to mention Waleed because we talked about it at the time that it's pointless. I mean, the the whole storyline is pointless. It goes nowhere. And then they kind of salvage it with the scene where Wayne ends up rejecting Tom's proposals, having been drawn towards accepting them. The whole Waleed experience then leads to the scene where Sandra talks him out of it inadvertently. And that's okay, fine. But we've spent a lot of time with this, and this kind of feels like a very, a very small payoff. There are other bits as well that are that are particularly bad. I mean, we start the season with the Middle Eastern man who is going to work and sees the news reports and gets suspicious looks, and then gets denied access to the bus out of racial fear. Obviously, we we we're very you know you'd have to be not looking to not see this. And then an East Asian man blows up the bus. And then we cut to the president and Tom and Karen, all the people in the Oval Office discussing the detention facilities and the restrictions of freedoms. And you kind of go, well, I know where they're going to go with this now, don't we? That you're going to spend the whole season of, well, we should be restricting the freedoms. and the, <sighs> But actually, we've seen from the first scene that what's that going to do? Because anyone could plant a bomb. Anyone can kill someone. Anyone could do anything. And it's like, it, it's frustrating to me. I don't think that a storyline like that, I don't think would work today. Um, not in the way that it was handled. If you handle it better, it's fine. But the way that they handle it is not. Yeah, I think... Um, Especially with the way that, you know, TV shows nowadays are getting canceled, not because of low ratings or or bad viewership, but because of the undertones around the show or things that happen in the show. So I think if they, you know, came back with a storyline like that today, unless they played it completely different than the way it was played here. Um. I think there will be calls for them to just cancel the whole show. So I don't know what was, it's hard to remember exactly what was going on back then, but I just feel like that the way that they played it and Fox has always been kind of iffy on that. I mean, Fox is a little bit more edgier than some of the other television networks as far as the content that they put out. Um, so I get it, but at the same time, I don't feel like most of it should have been there because, I mean, when you think about Wayne's sister, it seems like her only purpose there was for Wayne because the entire storyline with Waleed was, you could have probably taken 90% of that out of the show and it probably would have affected the flow of the show. You probably, the show probably could have just went on just as normal and you wouldn't have even noticed. She's there to kill Wayne, obviously as well. Don't forget that bit. Well, we're not going to talk about that Bradley because I'm still <laughs> upset about that. that. That's fair enough. But yeah, I mean, there are a couple of other examples that I've, I've pulled out here that I'm, particularly concerned by and that was uh first of all well i suppose actually we start if we're going to talk about nadia briefly that her access gets denied and then everyone's just kind of like yeah okay bill bill just has this one line of well it's you know i don't agree with it i'll fight it but we can't do it today and then milo circumvents everything and you just forget about it and then bill leaves and suddenly the issue's resolved like you could have done that in two seconds hours ago and we could have avoided this. You've got Doyle who decides that when there's a mole in CTU, Nadia is the first one because she's a Muslim. He says this and there's a whole big thing about it. And it's 
really grim and then he's also a reader of religious books and i'm like what <laughs> i like doyle at so many points so many points he's he's fine but this is just there's no consistency and the other thing that's really bad and you, you kind of you easily miss it i think is the way that um daniels forces tom into accepting Assad being framed for Palmer's assassination attempt and the way that they portray Assad as Palmer's assassin and how essentially what he's doing is looking at it and going, well, we think we, we know that there's Abu Fayed, who is a, a Middle Eastern Muslim man who has been orchestrating these attacks and Assad has been warring against the West for 20 years and now, instead of saying, well, hang on a minute, it was one of our people who didn't like policy, whatever, tried to kill De to kill Wayne. Actually, what we're going to do is we're going to frame it on the man who was trying to go for peace because he's part of the culture that he sees as the enemy here and that he's seeing essentially what I'm going to loosely define as his people, Noah Daniels, being white Americans. And then, if, and then there's everyone else. And I looked up this. In 2007, about 65% of the USA was white, non-Hispanic. So that's two-thirds. So that's like 100 million that don't fall into his purview here. And mm -hmm. it, as I say, it's one of those things because, you, you know, it's at the time, the impact of it in the show is Tom has to lie. And we know that's wrong. We know that the lie that he's perpetuating, Daniels, is wrong because we've seen the people involved. But when you actually stop and think about it, and the way that now this president is within the show, having had David, having had Keeler, having had Charles Logan, who evil as he was, at least had some sort of like unification, I guess. And now this, it's grim for me. Well, Noah was one of the more, probably the most complex president that we've had in 24. Because there are moments where you're like, okay, he's actually not a bad guy. And then, you know, five minutes later, you're reminded that he's a bit of an a-hole. So it's, it's, he's kind of like the epitome of that gray area. Like he's he's okay one minute, the next minute you want him killed off. There's really no in between here. Um, as far as Tom, <laughs> Tom's kind of the same way. You know, in the beginning of, in the beginning of the season, he was talking about these detention facilities, and it started to become clear that even though he was on the right side of everything with the president. He was also meant to be a bit of an antagonist. Um, even though it was clear he wasn't going to be the resident mole of the White House that we seem to have every season, um, but that he was going to be a bit of an antagonist, so to speak. And then by the, by the middle of the season, uh, pretty much after he got released from captivity, so to speak, after Wayne's uh, uh, accident. All of a sudden, they do a 180 with Tom. Now, all of a sudden, he's not an antagonist. He's not an a-hole. He's, he's, a, he's a good guy who wants to do the right thing. Um, so that's, that's another one of their... Uh, Complete 180, you know, they're, uh, they're Nina Myers kind of things where they just do this stuff out of nowhere with no build up to it. And they just kind of, uh, oh, okay, well, you know, we, we've already, we've already killed off Assad and Wayne, so now we can make Tom a good guy. Um, and I just think like it doesn't really, I mean, I like, Tom, in general. I forget the actor's name, so I'm going to call him Tom. Peter McNichol. 
Okay, Peter McNichol. There's a name for you. You know, I like Peter McNichol, but this particular, the way they portrayed Tom is kind of like they didn't know how to portray Tom. Do they want to portray him as a protagonist or an antagonist? And that was one of the confusing aspects because you hear him at the beginning with these detention facilities, but we never really get any payoff on that. Wayne just says, no, I don't want to do it. And that's pretty much it. You don't hear much about it after that. Um, even after Wayne has his accident, him and Noah don't really have much of a conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I'm just quite glad to put this behind us. I, I, when I, I said before that I think I rewatched it back in April of last year just to sort of get a feel as to how season six actually compared to how I remembered it, how people said it was, because it had been sort of six, seven, eight years since I rewatched it and it was worse than I remembered. And this was a large part of it, the racial politics. It's, it's bad. Riley, think about it like this, okay? <laughs> People, when they look back on 24 season six, and you said it aired in what, 2007? 2007. Because I know, I know there was a uh, little bit of a longer gap between six and seven because of the whole writer strike. Yep. Um, so you, you look at what goes on in season six, and even though it may not be looked at favorably, but you got to look at the potential the the plot threads in season six that eventually get played that eventually get paid off in season nine, which turns out to be the last season of twenty four. Legacy exists. <laughs> the last the last regular season of twenty four. Okay, um, in two thousand fourteen, we're not going to talk about that other one. <laughs> I'm just calling it, I'm calling it I'm calling it legacy. I'm not calling it 24 legacy. Okay. I'm calling it legacy. So, I mean, you, I mean you think about it. Audrey's comatose. That gets paid off in season 9. Chang. He gets arrested in season 6. We don't hear anything else from him. We find out in season 9 that he had been arrested in Spent his time in a Chinese prison until he escaped. We found that out seven years later. Um, Heller, you know, Heller telling Jack that everybody that everybody that you're around ends up dead. I want you to stay away from Audrey. And Jack choosing to stay away from Audrey at the end of season six, only to reunite with her in season nine. Before she ends up dead. So what Heller said in season six turned out to be spot on with what actually happens. So even though season six may be looked at as one of the worst seasons of 24. When you look at season six, it's actually more important to season nine that it really is to season six. I don't think that's a good thing. And it, well, and it, segues, us, it segues us nicely into the next topic because our next topic is about the nuclear bombs, which I hate. Well, of course you do, really. You hate everything <laughs> about season six. So the problem with the nuclear bombs, it's quite simple, really, because the first one goes off and you know you look at the first four episodes it, it's a, a double two-part premiere aired across two nights four episodes and you get to the end of the fourth one and the nuclear bomb goes off and oh my word it's a new that that's a huge big shock well done 24 but then where do you go then what because we've already established that you can't set off another nuclear bomb because it would ruin the country like you can't you know, 24 has done some crazy things and it's killed a lot of people. And on the whole, it kind of gets away with forgetting that that happened or not really, you know, it's the kind of the, the Batman Gotham thing of 
well, Gotham has been destroyed 20 times, but it's still got a population of 600,000 or whatever. Like, no, no one lives there at this point. And it's kind of the same thing with Los Angeles, that a nuclear bomb went off in the Mojave Desert. The, president, the, the presidential candidate's been almost killed three times there. Uh, there's been a deadly virus released. There's been nuclear meltdowns and nerve gas attacks. And now another nuclear bomb goes off. And it's like, well, no one still lives in Los Angeles at this point. But you, you, you live to accept that. So you know you can't detonate a second one, which means that then all of the other four nuclear bombs lose their threat. The one that really sticks in my mind and irks me is the one that Jack disarms. Because who cares? It, it's not a threat at any point. When that bomb is there and Jack is disarming it, it's never going to go off. I don't feel like there's any tension to it because it's not going to kill Jack. You're not going to kill, you know, if you look at it logically, that bomb going off would also kill Fayette's helicopter. There's the fact that I mentioned before about the timing discrepancies and the fact that the acts end and you go to the commercials and it resumes exactly in the same spot that you left it five minutes before. This is also true of the nuclear bomb here, that Jack makes no movement on it for five minutes within the show. And then... The bomb clearly has made no movement within five minutes, but then it starts really rapid, being really rapid. And it's just like, okay, fine. You, you want Jack disarming a nuclear bomb? Great. But I don't feel like there's any tension to it. Whereas you think there should be. You know, Jack trying to disarm a nerve gas canister or Gael trying to stop the virus or whatever. That could, that could go off. That could go off. A nuclear bomb can't go off. It's, it's never going to happen. Well, the first four episodes, because within the first four episodes, that's also when Curtis gets killed. Um, they packed a lot in those four episodes. Um, and twenty four. One of one thing that I've always been critical of twenty four before is. Sometimes they have too many things going at one time. And it's hard to focus on one particular storyline when you have four or five other ones going on at the same time that they're also trying to focus on. So the nuclear, the nuclear bomb I thought was kind of displaced because Okay, the nuclear bomb goes off in, in, what was it, Valencia? Valencia, yeah. And it goes off like 30 seconds after he shoots Curtis in the neck. So it's like, you know, the, the him killing Curtis and the impact that that has on him is supposed to be a lasting impact. It's supposed to be something that affects him you know, for the rest of the season. And it does. But the impact of him killing Curtis is completely wiped out 30 seconds later because you have a nuclear bomb go off in Valencia. So I thought the placement of the bomb was ill-timed because it took the impact away from the gravity of the fact that he had to kill Curtis. So uh, the bomb either needed to go off before then and then maybe the tension built up to the point to where he killed Curtis or maybe Curtis um, tried to kill Assad after the bomb went off because he blamed Assad for it. That might have made a little bit more sense and then Jack killed him. Or they needed to hold off at least two or three episodes before having that bomb go off. Because I wasn't so much angry as of the bomb going off as I was the fact that it took away from the impact of him killing one of 24's central characters over the previous three seasons. You know, it's not like he just killed a random person to save a side. You know, Curtis had been a main character over the last three seasons. 
So I thought more attention needed to be paid to that, especially the impact that it would have on Jack. Because Jack shoots Curtis. He goes, he's throwing up, he's doing all this other stuff. Like Jack's never killed anybody before. And then the bomb goes off and automatically everybody forgets about it. So I thought that that was kind of poor writing in my opinion. And this is the case all the way through, isn't it? That there's always too much happening. You know, with, with the bomb that Jack disarmed, it's about Morris. And there's also the potential assassination plot going on. And then with the bomb that Jack moves with the drone, it's like, well, Daniels is taking control and Wayne's about to be brought out of a coma and Nardi is being tortured and Audrey's dead and we've only just learned that. And it's like, well, there's too much. And again, I come back to the nukes don't feel like a threat. The one that goes off, you know, that's kind of your defining moment of the season. I've already talked about the fact that it's not the defining moment of the season, but it's the defining image of the season, isn't it? You, and, and it feels like that at the time that, oh my God, they've really done this. But you've played all your cards because you can't do it again. You can't, you, know, you can't replicate this. You can't kill more people in the way that this does. And so what you're left with is you're left with four bombs that gradually feel less relevant the longer time goes on. I mean, there's that stretch between 4 and 7 p.m. where they're sorting out the drones and trying to build them and set them up on everything. And it's like, well, th- th- there's no danger here. They've got three hours before anything happens. And then the last two bombs just don't get used. You've got that really awful line that's one of Fayed's last saying we're going to take out downtown Los Angeles. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. And I'm like, okay, fine. You want to do that. Why didn't you just do that hours before? Why did you need to waste your time with Gredenko and the drones? This is what's ruined your entire plan was going with Gredenko. And now you're just like, well, let's just do this. Why didn't you do that before? You seem flustered, Bradley. (laughs) I just feel like, I, I get why the nukes were there and I, you know, the one that went off great, but you look at the small, the, the smaller threats, let's say of the nerve gas and of the virus particularly. And I suppose to an extent, the override and, and the things that Marwan did, but Marwan succeeded in a lot of his, his efforts. A lot of what he tried to do went off and there was an actual threat and you, but I look at the sort of the two, the two kind of gas ones, the virus and the nerve gas, and I feel like there's always a danger to it. You know, the virus obviously we're experiencing now anyway, but the way that that's at the heart of the hotel and the way that, that can spread is great. And and the lethal nature of the nerve gas and how easy it is, they all feel like threats. And the nuclear bombs, it feels too big. It's too big for this twenty four because twenty four feels so grounded so much of the time. When you start introducing nuclear bombs and killing twelve thousand people in a click of a fingers, it it, it 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 it's too much for me. I also feel like Gordanko is another um, plot device because there are times where I feel like Gordanko was there just to give them an excuse to bring back Charles Logan because that's literally his only purpose in this season. Um, I mean, right. we, we established before that he does nothing. He's the worst villain in this show, in the show. Uh, for this season. No, I think he's the worst villain in the show. I think uh, you, you're going to, you're going to complain about Tony for reasons, but, it, but, but Gridenko functionally, at least Tony, when we get to season seven, at least Tony actually has a plan. And he, he <clears throat> thinks it through and succeeds in some things. What does Gridenko do? Gredenko wastes time, gets caught, and gets fired and himself killed. That's it. Fayed does all of his damage before he meets with Gredenko. Well, that, first of all, when you say worst villain in the show, that's covering a broad spectrum, Bradley, okay? Most, inc- most incompetent, I will say <clears throat> then. Have that. Uh, I don't know. I think... Uh... I think Debaku in season seven has kind of has him running for his money on that one. Ibaku kills more people than Gredenko does. His own people. (sighs) Whatever. Anyway. (laughs) 
I feel like Gordanko is just a plot device. I feel like he could have been better had they uh had they made him a little bit more because Gordanko doesn't look like the kind of guy that would take orders from Fayette. Gradeco looks more, if you just look at it from the outside looking in, and let me let me preface this by saying, because you're going to get all these hate emails and hate tweets at Gifted Money. When I say from the outside looking in, I'm not talking about their ethnicity, okay? I'm not talking about the, the, the racial part of it. I'm talking about just the setup of it. You know, Gradenko you would think would be the guy in charge. He's not. He's a puppet. He's he's a he's a pawn. He's part of a he's part of a bigger plan that never gets realized. And <clears throat> I thought, you know, Fayad gave him chance after chance after he screwed up once, he screwed up twice. Fayad could give him chance after chance. And I'm just waiting for Fayad to put a bullet in it. It doesn't. So I just, I felt like the storyline with Gradenko could have ended probably three or four episodes before it actually did. Um, the storyline with Gradenko was probably, had they not brought in Logan, the storyline with Gradenko probably could have been done in one, maybe two episodes. And it's another symptom of them cramming too much in that Gradenko could easily stand by himself, but they throw him with Fayed. You've got Philip Bauer in there. You bring back Charles Logan. You have the guy at the, the Russian consulate whose name escapes me, played by John Noble, uh, Anatoly Markov. Oh. Uh, yep. yep. And it's just, it's a mess because Gradenko, like you said, like he shouldn't be taking orders from Fayed. It, it's just as simple as that. Yeah, and after after the second episode, I kind of get lost on Gordenko. Um Because once their plan gets thwarted and once, once Jack kind of, I guess, disarms the, uh, the drone, that should have really been it. And the fact that it wasn't, after that, it kind of felt like it kind of felt like they were having him there just to have him there. Because I think Fayette probably should have uh, broken his ties at that point. Because he was rather incompetent for a villain. Yep. Yep. Should we go on to happier things? Happy things, that's what I'm talking about. Marilyn Bauer. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Look, I, I'm going to be honest. My wanting to spend much time on this is, is gone. Um, let, let's get through this as quick as possible. This is this is really bad. Are we in agreement? Most of it, yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. Uh... What, what's, good, what's good about it for you then? If, if, not, if most of it is bad, what's the good bit? Well, she, she played her role well. And I thought that what I didn't like was the kind of like, uh, what's her name? Kate Warner, you know, playing the damsel in distress kind of character. That's one thing I don't like. I don't like the damsel in, dist- in distress kind of character, especially in 24, because it just doesn't really fit in with the overall theme. So I thought she had potential. The scene with her and Audrey, I thought was really well done. And it also played into the tension between Jack and and his brother. Because in reality, she always had feelings for Jack, but she ended up marrying Graham. So I thought that added a little bit family drama to it. Um, So in that aspect, I thought it was okay. But having her be sort of a lame duck kind of character. Like you, you knew that her and Jack weren't going to get together. 
Like there was just literally no um, romantic chemistry at all between the two. Um, so I, I never really, even watching the season for the first time, I never really thought that they were going to end up, you know, together. Um, but I thought that she, I thought that her lines and her her scene with Audrey and the scene with Jack, which I think was one of her last scenes before she was kind of off the show, I thought those were good. I just thought that everything else was bad. As far as her scenes with Graham, um, her scene with Josh, who I also didn't like. Um, I'm on the opposite page to you, which is the the stuff with Graham and Josh I could live with, but the stuff between Marilyn and Jack, just no. From start to finish, no. You said about that I have no romantic chemistry, and yet every scene from minute one that she gets introduced and that they first share a frame it's all about that all the way through the season there is not a single moment that goes by maybe a little bit when they're trying to survive the attack on CTU that's it everything else is about that you know the fact that Marilyn is the one that tells tells Jack about Audrey I can live with that but then the whole thing stems from like that comes from the fact that Jack is like well, I'd have to find out what's going on between me and Audrey before anything can happen between me and you. And I'm just like, well, her husband died six hours ago. He was your brother. It's six hours. Six hours. Six hours. Yeah, six hours. And I know things happen very quickly on 24. And watching it in real time, you kind of forget because it's six weeks between ep- that, that episode and this episode. But just, ugh, I, I don't like you said they've got no chemistry at all um i'm not particularly keen on rena sofa in this you know she's had about 2000 episodes in the bold and beautiful i'm sure she is excellent on that but i have no interest in watching a show like that and it's it's very out of place i feel you mentioned kate warner there kate had a characterization kate was relevant to the story before anything with Jack. She had Marie. She had all the stuff with the suspecting of Razor and then the way that her father was pulled into it and his ties to legal authorities. And then obviously the stuff at the end with the Cypress audio, she actually had a purpose beyond just like needing to be saved and being Jack's potential girlfriend. That's it. That there was more to her. There isn't anything to Marilyn at all. Well, you, you think about six hours before when when Graham meets his untimely demise, um, and Jack finds out that Graham is dead, and Jack doesn't really show any kind of emotion to it. Jack's also, let's, just not like, for, let, let's not forget. Hang on a minute. That he's the one that's thought to be responsible for Graham's death. So not only, not only is Marilyn going to her brother-in-law's arms, potentially six hours later to be, to do whatever, but he's also the one that to their knowledge killed him. Well, yeah, but Jack knows he didn't kill him. Jack doesn't know he didn't kill him. He said he. Jack oh, yeah, said sorry, himself. Oh, sorry, no, sorry. No, they do. They, they maybe they do actually know by this point, don't they? Did, did I think Philip may have said it? Who knows? Yeah, Jack. Jack. Jack knows he didn't kill him because Jack said it himself. He was alive when I left. So Jack knows he did not kill him. I think no, Jack. Jack accepted that he was responsible for it at that point. I just can't remember whether Philip said subsequently that he killed Graham. I think that was found out, I think maybe like an episode or two later, once uh okay. once Jack had Marilyn pinned up because there was a phone call. Oh yeah. And yep. he assumed that I Marilyn remember, was yep. on yep. he assumed that Marilyn was in on it, but she was like, No, it was yep. Philip on the other end. I think that's when it kind of all set in for him. Um 
But Jack, other than that, Jack really didn't show him much emotion to the fact that, you know, his brother is now dead. So it tells me that him and Graham didn't really have a strong foundation. I mean, Graham's been trying to kill him for two years now. Or three years, 24 times, however much is between the seasons. Um, so it probably didn't have the strongest relationship. So I thought that Marilyn, after that, after Graham was dead, Marilyn, I, they became another plot device because she was essentially only there because Josh was there and they needed Josh for the story. So you can't just, you know, have his mother disappear. So I feel like that she was just there until Josh's storyline was wrapped up. And once that, and even before that, uh, an episode or two before that, once Josh was taken out of CTU, <clears throat> I feel like her purpose there was pretty much done at that point. So what you're saying is that the solution to not having to deal with Marilyn was just to not have Philip Bauer. That's what I'm hearing. Nope, that's not what I said at all. <laughs> that's, so, what I, that's, what, that's what I'm taking from it, because I'm, I'm in agreement that if is, that's the case. That is not what I said at all, Bradley. <laughs> you are putting words in my mouth. not what I said at all. Okay. Okay, I did not even mention <laughs> Okay. They could have gotten rid of Josh, and Marilyn wouldn't have been needed anymore. And they could have given Philip some other reason to want to take over the world or sell the audio or whatever he was intending to do. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that. They could, they could have given him another ulterior motive other than, other than taking his, you know, grandson who hates uh, him. Yeah. Grandson who hates him and wants nothing to do with him. Taking him to China. Yep. Whose father he murdered. Yeah, and that's and that just apparently is no consequence to him. He doesn't care about that, you know. Happy families. Oh, I've seen better families. Yeah. Um. Okay. Season six overall. Anything else you want to say? I just have one note for it, and it just is all caps. The word bad. Oh god. I I, only- I I don't want to spend any more time on it. To be honest. The only, the only thing is I obviously didn't have as much of a negative opinion as you did, obviously. But now knowing that I've now watched all of the seasons and knowing what eventually happens, even though as a standalone season, season six may not have been that good, when you look at it in totality of how season six plays into the eventual end of the series and season nine. We're not talking about the other one. The eventual end of the series in season nine. Um, it has a better historical context. Like historically, a lot of what happens in season nine is a reflective on what happened in season six. Like you, and we'll get to season nine eventually, but you look at what happened in season nine, a lot of that plot thread, especially the last half season or the last three episodes, um, were completely reflective on what happened in season six. So even though it was a standalone season, it may not have been that good. When you look at it in totality in a historical context, it still meant a lot to the overall series. And that, that is the positive spin that I'm putting on. Okay, fair enough. And you are right. Although sadly, I think individual seasons do need to work by themselves rather than just as a prequel for future seasons. But... You know what can work as a prequel for a future season? 24 Redemption. Before we get into Season 7 next week, we do need to talk a little bit about Redemption. Um, now, I, I, I'm going to come to you in a second, but I hadn't watched this for... 
I I'd say maybe a decade. This is certainly I'd have, I'd have certainly rewatched season six and seven and eight, which are my least rewatched. Um, I'd have certainly rewatched them more recently than I did this. And I got through it the other night, and I was amazed to find that actually it's really good. And I don't know why I haven't been rewatching it more over the years. I enjoyed it. Um, if I'm not mistaken, my memory is a little fuzzy, but <clears throat> didn't they do the prequel because they were trying to bridge the gap because of the long layoff due to the writer strike? Yeah. Isn't that so why me, they do? Yeah. So let me put this into some context. So, um. Story is, it's 44 months after day six. Uh, day seven then starts uh, just over two months later. We're in Sangala with Jack. He's been globetrotting to avoid the US because they've issued a subpoena. They've disbanded CTU and they want to basically trial him for um, his crimes, basically torturing people, all the stuff that he did that we all love watching. He's working with his friend Carl Benton, who he knows from his days in the Special Forces. He's got a school um, with child, with a, a load of young children that he's managed to save from basically being turned into soldiers by General Benjamin Juma and Colonel Ike Dubaku, who want to take back Sangala from democracy, basically. And they manage to save the children, get them away from the school. Carl dies, unfortunately, in the process, but Jack manages to get them to the embassy. And he's arrested in doing so, but they're going to be safe. He's going to be safe. Um, and meanwhile, we've also got back in Washington, President Alison Taylor um, being inaugurated and the setup with her son Roger's death. Um, so to your point of the sort of the, the real world context, yes. So they filmed, they'd written and filmed eight episodes of season seven when the writer's strike hit in November 2008 or 2007 or whenever it was, like 2007? 2007 seems right. And so what they did was in order to, you know, they, they moved into this schedule by then of January, they air all the episodes one, one week after another, so there's no breaks, unlike the first couple of seasons. And what they decided to do was instead of putting out eight episodes and then kind of getting stuck and having to come back to it, they said, right, we're going to put that on hold. We're going to come back to it in some time. We're going to bridge the gap with 24 Redemption, a two-hour film, for TV will fill in the gaps between season six and season seven. So that's what this is. I say, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought that this was after watching season six and it, it been a couple of weeks since I got through it, it kind of felt 24 again. And you look at, you know, they've always talked about doing a 24 movie subsequent to season eight and season nine and legacy and everything. Once the original series ended and you look at redemption, you kind of think, well, would a 24 movie work? Because the whole thing is that it takes place over 24 hours. You have the length to breathe. Yes, there are issues with it sometimes that they run out of story in certain aspects. But ultimately, as long as it's in real time, as long as you've got that good story to tell, then why couldn't it work? And Redemption is proof of that, I feel. I feel like <clears throat> the way that you handle Jack in it, I mean, his sacrificing his freedom at the end uh, to save the kids is possibly one of his best moments in the entire series as a character, sort of highlighting his selflessness and the fact that he actually, he you know, whatever happens to him will happen to him, but he's got this duty to protect the children. He's got this duty to protect whoever, and he's going to do that no matter the consequences for himself. Well, when I, when I think about redemption, and I think about it in the context of what a 24 movie work, um, my answer is the same now as it was then and the same that it's been all along. Um, that no, it wouldn't work. Um, and the reason for that is when you look at 24 Redemption, 24 Redemption is meant to be a two-hour movie in real time from 3 to 5 p.m. Um, I think it's from 3 to 5 p.m. I'm not mistaken. 3 to 5 p.m. in Sangala, yep. Yeah. So it's meant to be a two-hour movie in real time. And it works. It's great television. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the storyline. I enjoyed the way it tied into season seven. Um, but then you look at a 24 movie. 
and what that would entail. Because when you do a 24 movie, like standalone movie, no season following it, it has to take place over a 24-hour period. And trying to cram 24 hours <clears throat> worth of content in a two to two and a half hour movie, I'm sorry, I don't know about you, but I just don't see that working. <clears throat> well, 24, I mean, it's, 24 more than anything, and we, and we say this and Live Another Day in Legacy, that it's the real time thing. That's the key thing. You yeah, know, redemp- it, it, redemption, redemption is twenty four, but it takes place over two hours. But it's re- it's in real time, and it's got all the yeah. characters that we love. So that kind of it works. It worked in that concept because it was meant to only take place over two hours. And even when you look at Legacy and Living of the Day, even that you had a, you had eleven episodes, eleven and a half episodes in real time, and then. Like the last half of the last episode, they do this 12-hour time jump. (laughs) So that tells you right there that they didn't really know how to do this 24 thing over 12 episodes. Well, you can't. So they you you stop at 12 12 hours or you do the time jump. So they could have done a time jump in every episode. You know, they could have had every episode take place over two hours. Just do time, just do little minuscule time jumps here and there. So they could have done that, but they chose not to. They chose to do this huge 12-hour time jump at the end that made little to no sense. So if they couldn't do it over 12 episodes, what makes you think they would have been able to do off of that in one movie? Because Redemption that, is really good. Yes, it is, but it takes place over two hours. That's fine not with me. Not 24. <laughs> fine with so, me. That's a fa- it's effective. If you do a 24 movie, completely standalone, with no season, no prequel, no nothing, just a complete standalone movie that is supposed to be the beginning and end of 24, it has to take place over a 24-hour period. <laughs> and you can't do that in a two-hour window. It's just you just can't do it. It's a little bit besides the point because, like you know, we, we've got redemption. Um, you mentioned there, like it's a setup for season seven. It absolutely is. It, you know, yeah. I think it works. <sighs> I was I was wondering whether you could watch it and kind of not really have any. I, I feel like you could watch this and not really care about season seven. As in, kind of you you watch it and then you go. Well, I don't really need to watch season seven. I, I I feel like you can do that. I don't think you should, but I think it, like it works on its own as a production of twenty four. You know, it's a prequel, but it's not like the, the sort of the five six minute prequels we've had for pre- previous seasons that are just clearly little little mini clips that need to fit within the wider context. This kind of this works on its own, um. And it's a really, I think it's a really good setup for season seven. It sets up everything apart from Tony. You know, you have the the Senate subcommittee with Jack and you have President Taylor being inaugurated, but you then have sort of, you know, I, I, I hadn't watched this in a long time, which did two things. One, actually, it's kind of the same thing. It was nice to watch something from 24 and not know exactly what like the next scene and the next line is going to be, which I've done for most of the show so far. That was quite nice, which led to like Nichols in it and Jonas Hodges is in it and uh, Vossler is in it. Agent Vossler is in it. And that kind of took me by surprise because I didn't remember that they got introduced this early. So then when you come to season seven and Vossler is introduced as, you know, you're meant to know that he's the bad Secret Service agent. Hodges will come into it and you, you know that he's associated with the Juma regime and Nichols is just a bad guy. You know, there's no like, Oh, here's this guy and he's meant to be whatever, but he's actually quite bad. No, no, we know this. So from that aspect, setting up all these characters and all the stuff with Roger Taylor and yeah, it it, it really works for me. Yeah. I I enjoyed, I enjoyed uh, redemption. I enjoyed Redemption a lot more than I enjoyed most of season seven. 
specifically for one reason, and I think you know what that reason is. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that in weeks to come. But I do, I do, I did enjoy Redemption. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more on the rewatch because I rewatched it a couple of days ago. I enjoyed it a lot more on the rewatch than I remember doing in real time when I when I initially watched it because I didn't I didn't know as much went on as it did. Like I completely I knew that Allison Taylor got um, inaugurated on this on the redemption, but I completely forgot that you know Tom Linnitz was on it, that Noah Daniels was here. I completely forgot that the uh, the season six regime was actually in redemption. I completely forgot about that. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff that I completely forgotten about. I didn't know about uh, what's his son's name, Roger. Roger. I didn't I didn't know Roger's death was on there. His death's not in there, to be fair. Was it? No, they uh, Chris the the guy that he knew his friend. Oh. I knew somebody's deaths. Yeah. Just Voss, Vossler and Hodges talk about the fact that Roger needs to be watched and it sort of it sets up him dying. Uh, Hodges is another guy that I didn't know was in this. I'd completely forgotten about Hodges until he was brought in in season seven, like once season seven actually happened. Um. I thought that that was the first time that we had seen him, but I completely forgot that he was actually introduced in Redemption. So that and the the guy with the Senate subcommittee traveling all the way to Sangala to try to bring Jack back, um, I thought was a little uh, little much. I think he was just part of the embassy, and they told him to do it. I don't think he would. I don't think he went there specifically for that purpose. Didn't he say that he's been tracking Jack over three continents? <clears throat> or did he say that they have been tracking I think they have. I think it was them, yeah. Okay. Well, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but I thought but I thought that it was um the Juma regime and Dubaku and the whole controversy around that, I thought it's just a lot more happened in redemption than I thought. I thought it was just like a two hour kind of buffer you know, kind of uh, whet your appetite a little bit. I didn't realize that so much had happened in there that actually happened until I watched it back. Yeah, I also, asked, I also forgot it was two hours. Yeah. If you'd asked me a week ago to tell you the things that happened in Redemption, <clears throat> I'd have been able to tell you the landmine, uh, Taylor's inauguration, and Jack getting through the gate and getting onto the helicopter. And then beyond that, I'd have drawn a blank. So... It was no, it, it was it was nice to revisit and and actually see that it's quite good, and like I said, actually be surprised by some things. So, yeah, I think I think the only the only scenes I can remember from Twenty Four Redemption before I rewatched it were the end scene where Jack agrees to go back to Washington in exchange for them getting all those uh, those kids, kids off, yeah. yeah, out of there. I remember that scene. I remember the scene where the subcommittee guy first meets him and Jack nearly breaks his arm. Um, I remember that scene. And then I remember the scene of Jack with the, with the kid when he tries to steal Jack's knife and he hides it under there. And Jack tells him that he can keep the, the clothes that he had. And then he goes to leave and Jack's like, I'm going to need my knife back though. <laughs> so those are the three scenes that I can remember from 24 Redemption. Everything else, I was kind of hazy on. Yeah. Well, fortunately, or potentially unfortunately, given my enjoyment of the surprise, I can remember a lot more of Season 7. And that is where we're going to go to next week. Um, Joel just threw his head back. So, look, listeners, you've enjoyed me ranting about Season 6 for quite a few weeks now. Um, I feel like we're going to get the same from Joel. Joel, don't say anything. We'll save it for next week. I know you're going to be compiling your thoughts over the next week. And I have subsequent a bunch of weeks. Thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I have a bunch of thoughts. <laughs> well, listeners, if you have thoughts, there are ways that you can send them to us and we will read them out on the show and we will, we will talk about them. Um, so if you have Twitter, you can send us something at the 24 podcast. Uh, if not, you can go to 24thfaithful.com 
and you can submit your feedback there. And I've even written down the voicemail that uh, Josh set up, which is 405-771-0567. You can leave an audio message there. And through some sort of technology, we will end up playing it. I'm not quite sure how that would happen if we do get one, but feel (laughs) free to send one in anyway. Uh, But that is season six. We are done. We are done finally with season six. And we can move on next week to season seven. We'll be discussing the first six episodes of that season. Um, Please do join us again next week. Thank you.